Hey, it's Cindy. This is episode 53 of the Tiny Course Empire podcast, and today we're doing something a little bit different. Every month inside my Six Figure Systems program, I get questions from my members. I answer them on my Q&A calls and in our brand new community. And today I've chosen a few of the best questions and I'm going to be answering them for you on today's episode. Stick around. Welcome to the Tiny Course Empire podcast, a weekly show dedicated to helping you launch and grow your digital course business, even if you don't have a big team or a six-figure ads budget. We'll help you design smart systems, take consistent action, and achieve massive success on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Cindy Bedar. Hey guys, before we get started today, I want to let you know that you will find the show notes for this episode along with the transcript and any recommended resources over at tinycourseempire.com forward slash 53. If you are new here, thank you for spending a little bit of your day with me and I hope you will hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. Coming up next week, we're going to be talking about entrepreneurial math and don't tune out on me. That's a really important topic and I promise to make it not overwhelming for you. So hit the subscribe button so you don't miss that episode. But in the meantime, let's get right to the questions because I've got some really good ones for you today. So first up, this is a really interesting question. It has to do with whether or not you should put out more free content or more paid content and what's the mix there. And the question is, should I take down my blog posts that share the information I want to include in my tiny courses? So this member is creating tiny courses. She has a plan to create several of them and she is concerned that her existing blog is going to kind of cannibalize those courses because a lot of the content that she has on her blog is also content that is included or that she plans to include in those courses. So my answer to her is I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't spend a lot of time getting the mix just right between your free and your paid content. I think that we tend to believe that if we put content out there for free, that people will not pay to receive it. And that's actually not the case. I've said before that, you know, you can basically learn anything for free online these days, right? You could learn to be a lawyer or a rocket scientist. You can go to college for free. You can attend MIT for free online, 100%. So there is nothing that you can't learn online for free. The value of courses, the value of creating something that is paid, the reason people will pay for those things is because they get a more step-by-step, more hands-on training, more hands-on learning. In fact, I can think of several examples of well-known marketers, well-known bloggers who put the same content out for free as they do in their paid products and in their paid courses. Darren Rouse over at problogger.net is one I've talked about many times. He, back in the early days, back in my early days online, 2006, 2007-ish, He had a course called 31 Days to Build a Better Blog, and he made no bones about the fact that that content was pulled directly from his blog. It was basically 31 of his best blog posts compiled into an ebook that he was then selling, and he went on to sell 
I don't even know how many thousands of copies of that ebook, even though it was freely available content on his blog. He sold it as an ebook, he published it on Amazon, and then he's turned it into a course, and that course is still for sale. And my guess is if you dug through the archives of his blog, those original blog posts are still available for free to anybody who wants to go looking for them. Michael Hyatt is another example. Michael Hyatt has a very popular course called Best Year Yet that he runs every year around December-ish, January. It's about goal setting and creating intentions for the coming year. And he also sells a book called Best Year Yet. Now, it's not quite the same as having free content out there, but my guess is if you went back through his podcast episodes and through his blog posts, you would find much of that content freely available online just as it is inside that book and just as it is inside his course that he sells. Here's the thing. There are always people who will want to DIY. There are always people who have more time than they have money to invest. And they are your self-starters. They are the ones that are going to hunt through your archives. They are the ones that are going to Google for results. They're going to watch YouTube videos. They're going to read your blogs. They're going to do it themselves. And then there are always those people who don't want to do it themselves. They don't want to have to piece it all together. They want the more hands-on approach. They want more step-by-step process to follow. And they are the ones who will always pay. And there is room in this world and there is room in your business for both of those people. So I don't want you to spend a ton of time thinking, oh, I have to be careful what I publish on my blog. I don't want to give away too much information because then people won't pay me because that just has not been my experience. Now, that doesn't mean that you should freely publish every single course as is and then charge for them also. I don't think that's necessarily a good idea. I just don't think you should get too hung up on finding that perfect balance. I wouldn't worry about it that much at all. The next question we have is about those tiny courses. How long do you think a tiny course should be? Should it be multiple modules or should it be just a single video? And how long should each video be? This is a question I get quite often. People want to know exactly what that tiny course package looks like. And I don't have a really good answer. It's a bit like asking how long is a piece of string. But my definition of a tiny course is one that can be consumed, say, in a weekend. So somebody can purchase it. Maybe it's got three or four hours of video in it and they can watch it over an afternoon or over a weekend. What's not a tiny course to me is something that has several hours of video. For example, I bought a course recently about how to use a particular piece of software and it has like 83 videos in it and it's a total of 10 hours of content. That is not a tiny course to me. That will take me a week or more to actually go through that entire course if I'm really working at it. And in reality, it's probably going to take me several months to work through that course. So that would not be a tiny course. A tiny course also would not be something that rolls out over several weeks where you're drip feeding content week after week after week, maybe a six week or an eight week or a 12 week course. Those are not tiny courses. A tiny course is something that I can purchase and consume relatively quickly and get results from relatively quickly as well. 
And as for how long videos should be, the tendency is for videos to be shorter. I would aim for 10 minutes or less for each video. And I got to be honest here, you guys, I don't meet this criteria in my own courses. My tiny course videos tend to be 20 minutes or so, but shorter is generally better. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, because people have limited time. They only have a few minutes. They don't have time to sit down and watch an hour or two hour long video. The other reason is because a lot of times we want to go back and rewatch something. We want to go back and review something that we learned. And it's really hard to find it when it's embedded in, you know, it's when it's a five minute chunk that's in the middle of an hour or 90 minute video. It's much easier if you give them those individual strategies, those individual processes in separate videos so that your students can go back and watch just the ones that they need to watch. I mentioned a minute ago about that course that I bought that's 83 videos. I don't have to watch that entire course. I can pick and choose the ones that are applicable to me when I need them. I don't have to watch. I don't have to sit through hours and hours and hours of video just to find those tidbits that I'm looking for. So shorter videos, always, always better. The next question we have is something that doesn't come up very often, but it certainly came up for me when I was just getting started. And maybe when you were just getting started, or maybe you are just getting started and you're wondering the same thing. So I think this is an important question that we need to have an answer to. The question is, being new and just starting, how do I obtain social proof to use as testimonials for my products and services. That's a struggle that everybody faces when they're brand new, right? We hear so often that we need to have testimonials on our sales page and we'll see websites with loads of testimonials on them and you're just starting out and you think, what am I supposed to do? What do I use here? So there's a couple of different ways that you can kind of get the ball rolling with good testimonials. Number one, you can do small projects for free. And this works whether you are a freelancer, whether you are a course seller, whether you are a coach, you can do small projects or offer small courses or do a limited time consulting or coaching for free in order to generate those testimonials. You can also do work at a reduced cost. My friend Kelly McCausey used to teach this method. I don't know if she still does. If she does, I'll find a link and I'll drop it in the show notes. But she used to teach this method where new freelancers could get clients at a reduced cost in exchange for testimonials. And I think that's a great way to go, especially when you're brand new. The other thing you can do is just get creative. Think outside the box about what might be a testimonial. So for example, you might get a testimonial from your former employer. You might get a testimonial in the form of social media comments where people are saying nice things about you that aren't necessarily about what you do, but that are somewhat related, that you can kind of see your way towards, yeah, that could potentially be a testimonial. Are they going to be great testimonials? No, they're not going to be the best, most amazing testimonials in the world, but they are better than not having anything at all. You can also look to friends and relatives who know you and who maybe haven't worked with you, but who are aware of your strengths in the area that you are working. So a good example of this would be, say you are 
launching a home organizing business and you have a friend who comments that your house is always spotless, that it's always clean and it's just a joy to come over for dinner because your house is beautiful. That's a great testimonial for a home organizing business. It's not actually a testimonial, right? She didn't hire you, but just that statement that you're living up to the standards that you are setting in your business is enough to get some attention and be used as a testimonial, even though it's from a friend. You don't just say it's from a friend on your website, but you can put it out there as a testimonial until you get new ones coming in that are maybe better and more focused. All right, next question. How can I move from infrequent to a daily email schedule? So you guys know me, you know that I advocate emailing every single day. I do recognize, however, that not everybody is up to emailing every single day. So in that case, I recommend that you start by emailing consistently. So maybe you're only emailing once every two weeks or once a week or maybe even just once a month. And now you want to move into a more frequent schedule. You want to move into a daily schedule. So the first thing I'm going to recommend is that you don't shock your audience with a huge shift all at once. So I don't want you to move from mailing once every six weeks to mailing every single day. It's going to startle your audience. They're not going to know what's going on. They're going to get a little freaked out and it's not sustainable for you. It's really hard for anybody to go from doing something infrequently to doing something every single day. That is a tough thing to do. It's tough to sustain and you're more likely to fail at that. So I don't want you to start that way. So don't do the rip the bandaid off plan for this. You want to start slow, aim for consistency at first and then increase the frequency. So what that might look like is say you're emailing once every six weeks, like I said, maybe you want to go for mailing every other week at first. So put it on your calendar send an email out every two weeks. And then once you've been doing that for a couple of months, then maybe increase to every week and then do that for a couple of months and then increase to twice a week and do that for a couple of months. So work up to it rather slowly. Don't just drop a bomb and start emailing every single day because number one, you're going to freak out your subscribers. And number two, you're not going to be able to sustain it, or it's highly unlikely that you're going to be able to sustain it. It's too radical of a shift. So work into it slowly over time and you'll get there. This next question is one that I really like. It's short and to the point, and it's a topic that I am continually talking about. And that is, how can I get more organized? Now, one thing I want to tell you guys is organization is really important for small business owners. I cannot tell you how many people I have talked to who waste so much time simply because they are not organized. I will get on the phone with coaching clients or get on a Zoom call with coaching clients and we have a goal to publish a blog post or to set up a product in a shopping cart and we waste five or 10 minutes just looking for logins or looking for documents or trying to figure out where they saved that image they wanted on the sales page. That's just, it's a huge, huge waste of time. And 
as business owners, we have a lot of things that we have to do, right? There's a lot on our plate. We don't have time to be wasting looking for documents or looking for images or resetting logins every time we want to get into our website. So being organized is critical and it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. I think I'm a pretty organized person, but some people make me look like Pigpen from the Peanuts cartoon, right? So Understanding that organization doesn't necessarily come naturally to you is the first step to becoming more organized. Then from there, you're going to want to choose the tools that you're going to use and stick with. So what I mean by that is where are you going to store your documents? Where are you going to store your passwords? Where are you going to keep your notes? How are you going to keep track of your calendar? Understanding what those tools are Deciding what those tools are and using them consistently is going to really help you get and stay organized. The third tip I have for you is to use good file names. This is something that I talk about all the time. I talk about it in a lot of my courses. I mention it a lot because it's really important and it's really, really helpful to use good file naming conventions because it will help you find things down the road. If you always name your emails with the date that you are publishing them and the topic of the email, you will always be able to find an email that you sent or an email that you have written that you haven't scheduled yet. You'll always know how to find it because they are all named the same thing. If you always name your course material with the course name and then the lesson number and then the topic, you will always be able to find that information when you need it. I can't tell you how many times this kind of naming convention has really helped me to not waste a bunch of time. It's helped me to find things that I was looking for that maybe I created years ago, but that I needed all of a sudden. And I could put my fingers on it right away because I know how it's likely to be named and where it is likely to be stored. So just getting in the habit of always putting things in the place that you have assigned to them and always naming them in the way that you always name them will make all the difference to you. You also want to learn to rely on your calendar and your task manager. And listen, you guys, I don't want to go too deep into this. This is like a whole nother topic with task management and calendar management. I've talked about it before on this podcast. I'll link to that episode in the show notes. But you want to get in the habit of keeping track of your tasks, whether you keep them in a task manager, you keep them in a notebook, you keep them on a pad of paper next to your desk, wherever you write down all of the things that you should be doing do it all in one place. Keep track of those things all in one place. Don't spread them out. Don't keep some of your tasks on sticky notes and some of them on a notebook that's on your desk and some of them in a file in your Dropbox. That's disorganization. That's going to lead to a bit of chaos and time wasting. So keeping all of your tasks and your calendar all in one place is going to help you really focus on what needs to be done instead of focusing on looking for potential tasks that you may have forgotten. And it's going to free up a lot of space in your brain as well, because you'll know that you have all of those tasks captured somewhere. You have them where you can find them. You don't have to be remembering them all of the time. You don't have to be constantly thinking, oh, I need to make a dentist appointment. I need to make a dentist appointment. Don't forget to make a dentist appointment. You've got it written down on your in your task list so you know that you will get to it. You trust yourself that you will look at it and get to it when the time is right. 
I also want to encourage you to clean up your email inbox. I cannot tell you how much time is wasted when you have thousands of emails in your email inbox. It's so much mental overload. I can't even imagine. I'm an inbox zero kind of gal. I've talked about this before. I'm not saying that you have to be vigilant about that. You don't have to be me. You don't have to keep your inbox under 20 emails, but do keep it under control. And if you are a Six Figure Systems member, I talked about this in Organizational Mastery for Online Entrepreneurs. You'll find that in your membership. If you're not a Six Figure Systems member, here's a few tips to help you get your email more under control. Number one, don't use it to as your task list. Your email is not your task list. Your email is for communication. So what I mean by that is as email comes in, decide what you're going to do with it. Is it something that you have to do? If so, put it on your task list and archive the email. Is it something you have to reply to? Reply to it and archive the email. Is it something you want to read later? Put it in a folder titled read later and get rid of it out of your inbox. Box, so it's not there every time you log in to your email, staring at you and distracting you from what you went in there to do in the first place. Because that's the real problem with a messy email inbox is every time you open up your email to find something, there are all of these other things in there that are distracting you, that are keeping you from the task at hand. So getting those things out of your inbox is really important. Another tip I have for you regarding email is to make use of your email platform's automation. So what this means for me, I'm a Gmail user. All of my email comes into my Gmail inbox, whether you email me at my Gmail address or at my business address, it all comes into my Gmail inbox. And that means that I can use Gmail's rules and labels to automatically organize things. So for example, I get a PayPal notification every time I receive a payment. I don't want those in my inbox. I don't need them in my inbox. They're just clutter. They're not something I need to have or I need to see. They are something I need to have. So I have my Gmail automatically filter those. It receives them in, then it marks them as read and it files them. So I don't actually see them, but they're there if I need to go back and find them later. I can use Gmail search to find them. And I do this with lots of different emails. Every time I receive a payment notification about an affiliate offer that I have promoted, that is automatically filed away as well so that I don't have to see it in my inbox. It's not that important. I don't need to open it and read it. It doesn't need to clutter up my inbox. I need to be able to find it later if I need it, but I don't need to see every single one that comes in. So those are automatically filed away too. I also file newsletters that I want to read. I have several that I subscribe to that I definitely want to read, but I don't necessarily want them interrupting my workday. So those are automatically filed away in a folder called newsletters. So I can read those later when I have time. They're not distracting me from my day-to-day -day business by being in my inbox. So make use of those automations that are available to you. And you have access to these, whether you're using Outlook or Gmail or Yahoo Mail or whatever your email platform is, they all have these automations available to you. So learn how to use them to keep your email inbox cleaner and you will waste a lot less time in there. 
So those are my tips for getting more organized. And this is something that I believe every entrepreneur, every small business owner should do. A little bit of time invested now getting organized will save you hours, days, weeks down the road not looking for things that have been lost, documents, passwords, whatever. So spend a little bit of time, get a little organized now, decide which tools you're going to use, where you're going to store things, how you're going to store them, how you're going to name them, and then follow that system. It will save you hours of time. All right, next question. Does my website need to be ADA compliant? This is a really important question. There are website owners, small business owners out there who are being sued because their websites are not ADA compliant. So yes, in my opinion, you should aim for ADA compliance just to protect yourself. But let's dig into this a little bit more. And first of all, I do need to say I am not a lawyer. I have not studied this issue I have no legal certifications of any kind, so you should definitely speak to a lawyer if you are concerned. Don't take random advice from a podcaster online about this. But yes, in my opinion, you should aim for ADA compliance on your website. Now, let's talk about what ADA compliance is. ADA stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act. So right away, you know that this is U.S. specific. Now, I am certain that other countries have similar laws, so you would want to be aware of what's going on in your country if you are not in the U.S. But in the U.S., the Americans with Disabilities Act says that as a business owner, you are required to make reasonable accommodations so that people with disabilities can access your services. That means means that if you have a store and there are steps that lead into the store, you must also have a wheelchair ramp so that people with a wheelchair can get into your store. It means that if you have an elevator and there are numbers for the floors, you must also put them in Braille so that people who are blind or who are visually impaired can still use your elevator without being able to see those numbers. Those are the kinds of things that that law was meant to create. Now, the problem is that that law was written in the 70s before the internet existed. And that means there's a lot of confusion about whether or not or how websites can comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that has led to a bunch of lawsuits over the last couple of years of businesses that are not ADA compliant. And that can cost, as you would imagine, a whole lot of money. So now there is this movement to get websites ADA compliant. And this is a good thing. I think you should aim for this. I think your website should be accessible by people with disabilities. But here's where the problem lies. There are a lot of people out there who are selling plugins, for example, for WordPress that claim to make your website ADA compliant. And those, I don't want to say they don't work. They do some things, right? They do some things. I have one on my website. It does some things. Does it make my website in compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act? No, there is a lot more to it than just making your fonts bigger or making your contrast more so that people with visual impairments can read it. There's a whole lot more to this than 
any one plugin can possibly cover. So if you are concerned about this, and I think you should be, you would do well to take a course on what being compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act really means. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a course, and I do want to tell you, I have not taken this course. It comes highly recommended. Someone that I know personally and who I trust and who was incidentally sued for not being compliant has endorsed this course. She recommends it, so I feel comfortable recommending it. It is not an affiliate link. I'm not an affiliate of this course or this seller. I just know that it comes highly recommended from a good friend of mine. So I feel comfortable recommending it to you. If you are interested in making your site compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act, you would do well to take this course as well. It's not that expensive. It's like 150 bucks or something. So it's well worth the investment well worth that as opposed to getting sued and having to pay a whole lot more money and then make your site compliant too. So does your website need to be ADA compliant? The jury is honestly still out. There have been no definitive answers to that question, but I think in this case, it's better to err on the side of compliance and do everything you can to make your site accessible to people with disabilities. And that is more than just installing a plugin, unfortunately. All right, next question. What do I do when a launch doesn't go as planned? This happens. It has happened to me. It will happen to you if you are in business long enough. And I got to tell you, this is why I love the tiny course model, because I am not dependent on a single course launch for all of my income over the next several weeks or months or maybe even the entire year. But even a tiny course launch can sometimes be a flop. It's happened to me. Like I said, if you're in business long enough, it's going to happen to you. And that can sometimes leave you with an unexpected gap in your income. So what do you do? Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to do what's called a postmortem. And that means figuring out what went wrong. Did your sales page not convert? Were there competing products that were launched at the same time? Did your affiliates not promote as much as you expected them to? Did you have a low click-through rate on your email promos? And if you're not sure if all of those things were okay and it still didn't sell, then you can ask your customers, why did they not buy? What didn't appeal to them? Doing this kind of post-mortem at first is a really good way to prepare yourself for the future. You can't go back and change what happened with this launch, but you can make sure that your future launches go better. And this post-mortem is the step that's going to make that happen. Then from there, you decide what you're going to do now. So if you were counting on that money, then you probably want to get another product or another promo out really quickly. This is easier to do if you are a daily or a frequent email marketer like I am. If you are frequently promoting different things, then it's easy to switch up your calendar and start promoting something different and bring in a little bit of money to cover that gap. But even if you are not a frequent marketer like I am, if you were really depending on that one thing to get you through the next several weeks or several months, then you still have to pivot. You still will need to 
get something else out there to get some income coming in. So maybe that's another course. Maybe it's a course that you created and launched a year ago and that you want to relaunch. Maybe you're going to make a coaching offer. Maybe you're going to do some freelance work, whatever the case may be. You need to get that offer out there to cover that gap in your income. So that's the first order of business. And if you weren't depending on that money, then you can instead take a step back and take some time to make changes to your promo schedule based on what you learned from that postmortem that we talked about. So maybe you found out that your customers really don't want to learn about that subject. They want to learn about something different. Maybe you talked to them and they said, yeah, we're, we're not really interested in email marketing right now. We're more interested in social media marketing. So you look at your upcoming schedule and you see that you had an email marketing course scheduled for next month, you can switch that out and you can decide instead to do a social media course because that's what your customers are asking for. So being able to pivot your schedule like that is really helpful when things are just not going as well as you had anticipated they might go. All right, next up. How can I improve my email click-through rates? This is a really important metric. And you guys, if you don't know what an email click-through rate is, it's basically the percentage of people who received an email who clicked on it. So if you send your email to 100 people and 12 people clicked a link, that is a 12% click-through rate. It's super easy to calculate. All you do is divide the number of people who clicked by the number who received your email, multiply it by 100. That will give you your click-through rate. Most email platforms will tell you this. You don't even have to get your calculator out to do it. They will tell you what your click-through rate is. And your click-through rate is a good indicator of your sales rate or of your income because people can't buy if they don't click. And if you're an email marketer primarily, like I am, then that click-through rate is very, very important. So increasing your click-through rate is a good way to increase your revenue. And there's lots of different ways that you can do that, but they all come down to tracking, tweaking, and testing. So the first thing you need to do is start tracking your click-through rates. Get a baseline figure out what your typical click-through rate is. A lot of people want to ask, well, what's a good click-through rate? Well, a good click-through rate is what's good for you. It's not necessarily what's good for me. You can find numbers online where they will say, well, in this particular industry, it should be X percent, or in that industry, it should be Y percent. I don't believe any of that is really worth anything. It's not worth even going to look for because your click-through rate is your click-through rate. That's the only thing you should be comparing to. So figure out what your baseline is first. Then start making changes to your email program or to your email broadcast or to your campaigns to hopefully increase and test what happens when you make those changes. So some things that you can change is you might change where the link is. I have a tendency to put my links to my call to action at the very end of an email. And oftentimes what I need to do is move that call to action to the very top of the email instead, because maybe people aren't interested in whatever I'm talking about. They just want to get to the good stuff, right? They just want to see what's on offer that day. So I can move my email call to action or that link to the beginning of the email instead. You might also want to make the call to action or the link more obvious. 
make the font bigger, put it on its own line. Remember that a lot of people are reading email on their phones. So you want to make it really easy for them to see that there is a link there and to actually click on it. So make it bigger, put it on its own line, center it. That's going to make it easier for people to see and click. You might also add a button or an image of some kind. GIFs are really good for this. I taught how to make GIFs for your email in a recent course, and that's a really excellent use of those, is to put them in an email, make them clickable. They draw attention, they capture the attention, and they naturally get people to click. So using an image or a button of some kind is a good way to go. You can also use emojis to make your calls to action stand out. You could use this in conjunction with changing the font size and putting it on its own line, put a couple of emojis there just to get extra attention on that call to action. You can use different words, use different calls to action, test out saying things like click here to find out more or order yours by Tuesday or whatever the call to action is. Test out different phrases that you can use in that link. And you might even change up the time or the day that you send your emails. If you are a weekly email marketer and you send every Wednesday at noon, try sending on Thursday at 3 p.m. instead and see what happens to your click-through rate. The most important thing, though, is you have to track these changes. You have to pay attention. Did whatever change you made help? Did it increase your click-through rate or did it not? Because if it didn't, then go back to the way you were doing it before and keep testing and keep tracking until you find that combination that boosts your click-through rate. All right, last question. Do I have to offer PayPal as a payment processor? I know a lot of people are really down on PayPal, and this has been the case for years. This is not anything new. It's been the case since I've been online way back in 2008 or 2009 or so. People were hating on PayPal. A lot of people don't like them. They feel that they are that their fees are too high, that they are not supportive of sellers, especially digital product sellers. So some people are going the route of, I'm not going to offer PayPal at all. I see several course sellers. Usually it's typically with bigger courses, but some smaller courses as well. But I see some course sellers who do not offer PayPal as an option at all. And I think that's a mistake, honestly. I think there are a lot of people who prefer to use PayPal. I'm one of them. I prefer to pay with PayPal when it's available because I feel like I have more protection that way as the buyer. So there's a safety thing there for me. There's a comfort thing there for me as the buyer. Again, now as a seller, I don't necessarily feel the same way. As a seller, PayPal is not my favorite thing. But I can tell you that about 75% of my sales, my personal sales come through PayPal. So some days, yes, I would love to ditch PayPal, but I know that it is not the right thing to do for my business because 75% of my sales come through PayPal. So that would be what we would call cutting off my nose to spite my face, right? So do you have to accept PayPal? No, you don't have to. Should you? You probably should. I think if you're in the online space, then using the platform that most people prefer is 
good business. And if most of your people prefer PayPal, then I think that's just good business. Now, if you can't accept PayPal, if for some reason maybe something happened and PayPal has decided that they don't want to do business with you, I've heard of that happening, then you may not have an option. But I think if you do have an option to accept PayPal or not, I think you would be doing your business a disservice by not taking it. And again, that's just my opinion. Take it for what it's worth. It may not be true for your business. Maybe your customers don't care about PayPal. Maybe your customers would rather pay with credit cards. Maybe your customers would rather use Bitcoin. I don't know. But I think in most cases, having PayPal available is just good business. All right. That is it for me for the questions. I hope that you have learned something here today. I hope that you've found some interesting information. I hope you've enjoyed kind of listening in, not really to a six-figure systems Q&A call, but to a similar format. These are the kinds of things that we talk about on our Q&A calls all the time. So if you are interested in that, I would love to have you join us over at Six Figure Systems. But in the meantime, head over to tinycourseempire.com forward slash 53 to find the show notes, the transcript, and all of the resources I mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, let me know what questions you have, and I will answer them either in the comments or on a future episode. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, would you do me a favor and leave a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening? That helps other people to find us. And of course, if you have a friend or a colleague who could use this specific episode, you can just send them the direct link. That would mean the world to me. It's tinycourseempire.com forward slash 53. Have a terrific day, everyone. And I will talk to you all again next week. If you like what you hear on the Tiny Course Empire podcast, you're going to love all of the courses and workshops and support you'll find inside Six Figure Systems. That's my monthly program where we dig into online marketing for regular people like you and me. We don't do big launches, we don't have the big headaches, and we don't have the big expenses that come with them. Instead, we focus on creating repeatable, sustainable systems that continue to grow over time and that don't suck up all of our energy or require a 10-person team to manage. You can come see what we're all about at sixfiguresystems.com, and I'll see you on the inside.